All right. Well, I know you've heard the uh, saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Louis knows that saying. <laughs> oh, by the way, Louis, um, uh, happy birthday. <laughs> we won't sing happy birthday now, but you make sure that uh, you give your best wishes to Louis uh, after the service. Well, familiarity breeds uh, contempt. I did some excellent empirical research on that saying and I consulted Google and I found out that the ideas of this phrase go back thousands of years. In fact, it's a phrase that appears in Roman literature. It appears in Geoffrey Chaucer's uh, works in the 14th century and basically it means that once you get to know something so well, you start to focus on the negative aspects of that thing or that person. Or perhaps less intensely, you just start to take things for granted. Don't see the value and the worth of that thing. And so for those of us who have been on the Christian journey for a long time, we are at risk of becoming desensitised to scripture, aren't we? I mean, I've grown up in the church all my life and I'll read the Gospels and it's sort of, I know what that is, and doesn't speak to us. We read them time and time again and we simply stop listening. And Jesus says to us, he who has ears, let him hear. Sometimes our Bible reading habits will reinforce that mentality, you know. We'll read scripture in short grabs. Maybe over the breakfast table with a bowl of Wheaties we'll read a couple of verses and we might pray and see what God has to say to us. And that, that is fine, but we're in danger of missing the forest for the trees. We're in danger of becoming misled by focusing on one verse, failing to read it in its context in the book and in the canon in which it takes its place. We often miss the key point that the writer is trying to make in that scripture. A few years ago, I was really impacted by the testimony of Raj Chopra, who is a multicultural pastor uh, in Hobart, supported by Taz Baptists. He has an incredible story. Uh, he's an Indian uh, man and he received a call to come to Hobart from God. Now, it's a rather remarkable story because A, he was a Hindu and B, he had no idea where Hobart was. <laughs> now, this is his story and it's not mine to tell, but I just wanted to say a little bit about what he told us about his experience of the scriptures. When, not long after he came to Hobart, he met a pastor who gave him a Bible. And like all good Hindus, he took the Bible, he recognised it as being a holy item, so he put it in the shrine in his home where other holy items are kept. And it was really only until he reached a low point in his life, he said, that he actually picked up the Bible and started to read it. And he read the Gospel of Mark and was deeply convicted by what he read and it changed his life. Is he reading a different Gospel? 
than we're reading? How can those words have touched him so deeply when we read it and take it for granted? You know, the Gospel of Mark can be read in a little bit over an hour. Depends how fast you read, but it probably takes less time to read than it does to watch, say, Star Wars on telly. (laughs) Even Star Wars on a DVD where you don't have the ads. And this morning I just wanted to give you a hook into Mark, just a short statement that might help you get a sense of what the whole gospel is about. And I want to encourage you today that you might go home this week and actually invest some time, an hour, two hours, however long it takes, and sit down and read that gospel from start to finish because that's what was intended to be done. Now, it may be that you're not able to do that for whatever reason. I understand that. But there are so many resources available to us now. There are audible versions of the scriptures. You can sit and listen to it. In fact, the Lumos Project has produced some DVDs of all of the Gospels where the narrator is just reading the Gospel and then there is some, uh, some images that, uh, of, of, uh, of the ministry that um, uh, is showing at the same time. But it's, it's just the words of the Gospels that are being read. So whatever way you can do it, access the Gospels. Just a few words before we get underway about Mark. You know, for most of Christian history, Mark has been seen as just an abbreviated version of the Gospel of Matthew. Perhaps it's poorer cousin. It lacked the Polish Greek that uh, perhaps you'd find, uh, uh, um, if you read Greek, of course, in Luke. Uh, Of course, everyone read Greek. Well, let me rephrase that. Literacy wasn't great, but everyone spoke a form of Greek. And Mark, in a sense, was a a bit like baby Greek. It had a lot of grammatical, dodgy grammatical constructs, and and, and people thought, no, this is just not not the same as, as reading some of the other Gospels, and so it took a lesser place, and Matthew was was understood to be the primary Gospel, and there it takes its place uh, at the front of the New Testament. However, in the 19th century, there was a rethink about the Gospel of Mark, about when it was written and what place it has amongst the three synoptic Gospels. Are you familiar with that term? The synoptic Gospels referred to Matthew, Mark and Luke because they follow a similar synopsis. There is a pretty solid consensus now that Mark is the first of the Gospels. And if you do a comparison of them all together, you will find that there are passages of Matthew and Mark that agree that aren't in Luke. And there are passages in Luke and Mark that agree, but they're not in Matthew. And what we draw from that is that Matthew and Luke had Mark as a source. And of course they added to that from their own understanding uh, and experiences. I don't have a lot of time this morning to talk about dating uh, or authorship. And look, some of these things are a matter of supposition and speculation. Uh, But 
church tradition would indicate that Mark was probably written fairly early in the piece. Some people say it may have been written as early as AD 40, which would be remarkable because that's right in the middle of the, or at the commencement of the ministry of Paul. It's probably a too early date. But the consensus is that perhaps AD 60 to AD 70 was the period of time that Mark was written. And if you look through the Gospel of Mark, there should be something that might stick out to you, and that is that Mark takes the time to explain things to you about Jewish practices, about Aramaic language, and things such as that, which indicate that his readers had no real deep understanding about Jewish ways and traditions. It may not even been uh, set uh, in, um, uh, in Israel. The author, it's speculated, but uh, Papias, one of the church fathers, says that Mark was written by Mark. <laughs> Even though the gospel doesn't say by Mark, um, he says that Mark was the interpreter of Peter and uh, spent a lot of time with Peter. It might have been John Mark who spent a lot of time with Paul uh, and with Peter. It doesn't really matter but what's interesting, and you might like to look this up at some stage, is that the Gospel of Mark is really beautifully summarised in, in Peter's preaching in Acts 10.36-43. to 43. So if you want a really concise summary of what the Gospel of Mark is about, read those verses, because it's almost point for point. So a very Petrine element to the Gospel of Mark. Now, if the church traditions are correct, it's quite likely that the gospel was written for Christians in Rome, a people who had been endured a period of intense persecution. There was a great fire in Rome in AD 64 under Nero's reign. And Nero was under pressure because there were rumours that he couldn't couldn't quench that he was somehow responsible for that tragic event that destroyed most of the city. So he looked for some scapegoats and he found the Christians. You know, for many Romans, Christians weren't highly regarded. They were seen as atheists because they only worshipped one God. They were seen as involved in secretive and dodgy practices because they talked about drinking blood and eating flesh. They refused to engage in a whole lot of ritualistic social activities that, uh, that, that perhaps Romans didn't take all that seriously, but it was patriotic, and to do so put them under question. Many Christians didn't serve in the military, and so they weren't respected, so they were an easy target. Tacitus writes what happened. To, the, to these Christians, and I'm not going to tell you the atrocities uh, that were committed. But I was thinking about that as we were singing a song today, and it's a song that triggers some of you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. I just, it just staggers me to think how these brothers and sisters lived in the first century surrounded by people 
who wanted to commit against them the worst atrocities that you could imagine. So they were battered. They were harried community, exposed to ridicule, contempt, risk of death, dobbed in by neighbours like a police state. They had no delusions about what the cost is to follow Jesus. And Peter also was martyred during that period of time. So in writing a gospel to the Christians in Rome, it's a pastoral gospel. And here's the hook. The thrust of the gospel is who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? Why are we dying for this man? What does it mean for us to follow him under such extreme conditions? You know, nearly 2,000 years after that gospel was written, that question is as fresh today as it was then, don't you think? You know, we need to ask that question of ourselves, who is Jesus? You know, we know the church is on the nose. We know religion is, is, is something that is despised quite often, something that is criticised. But it doesn't ever take away from the essential question, who is Jesus? You know, we can have a crack at the church, but we're just avoiding the question, who is Jesus? And the answer has eternal significance, doesn't it? The answer requires us to make a choice not just a theological decision, not just the acceptance of some propositions about Jesus or subscribing to a creed, not just attending a Bible study and having discussions about it, because the answer to that question determines how we live our lives. It governs the things that we value. It gives us direction to de determine the decisions that we make to define who we are and who we are becoming. So, what does Mark say about the identity of Jesus? Mark's gospel starts with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. You know, Christ is not a word that uh, the gospel uses very often, about eight times, and half of those I think are by people who are criticising him. Mark doesn't really, he doesn't take that Jesus is the Messiah and shove it down our throats. He doesn't. He tells a series of stories that cause us to ask that question. So when you read Mark, you'll find that it's in two parts. The first part looks at the question of who Jesus is. And it reaches a climax in the chapter 8, 27, when Jesus finally asks his disciples, who do they say I am? And when Peter makes his great confession that you are the Christ, then Mark, the gospel, changes direction and heads towards Jerusalem where Jesus uh, is arrested, suffers, is crucified and, raised, and is raised again. 
let's look at some of the testimonies in Mark and I'll just go through these quickly, otherwise we'll be here all day. <laughs> Even though it only takes an hour and a bit to read. <laughs> Mark tells us about a prophetic testimony about Jesus. He speaks of the scriptures who, uh, who give promise to the coming of the Lord. He speaks of the ministry of John the Baptist whose testimony is that there is one who came, the one who will come after him but was before him. One that who, who will baptise by the power of the Holy Spirit and not just a religious water baptism. There's a testimony of God. You are my son whom I love. There's a testimony of evil spirits who appear to be compelled to proclaim who Jesus is. And what does Jesus do? He silences them. He doesn't accept their testimony. The passage of the, the first casting out of a demon in Mark 1.27 causes to the people to say... Who is this person? What is this new authority? How can he give orders to evil spirits and they obey him? So Jesus' ministry is causing them to ask questions about who Jesus is. Jesus' healings, they're not just gratuitous, miraculous events. They point to the question of who Jesus is. Let's look at Mark 2, uh, 1 to 12. You don't need to, to follow along if you want because you're going to read this uh, later this week. <laughs> A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. So many gathered. So many that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, Jesus, because of, the crowd, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He took up, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone 
and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus' healing of people causes us to ask the question, who is this man? Who is this man who says he can forgive sins? It was a dangerous statement to make. You know, we may have some theological differences in this place from time to time. People think in different ways. And apart from perhaps some metaphorical stonings, I've never actually seen anyone pick up a rock. But that was the risk that Jesus took in saying to that young man, your sins are forgiven. You know, Mark talks about the testimony of faith, doesn't he? Remember the story of Jairus, the story of the woman with the long-term bleed who said, sorry, I may have confused there, Jairus and the woman with the long-term bleed are two separate people. And the woman with the bleed who said, all I need to do is to touch the hem of, of his garment. It was a testimony of faith of who Jesus is. So in all of these accounts, Mark doesn't draw any conclusions for his readers. He doesn't. He's not forcing the readers to take a certain view. He's just teasing out who Jesus is, reminding those readers, reminding the readers who are subject to intense persecution who it is that they're worshipping, who it is that they're following. And this, this question builds and builds and builds. And in Mark 8, 27, when Jesus has his disciples in Caesarea, he asks that question. Let's read that. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. You see, they're trying to draw analogies. They're trying to fit Jesus into their mould. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You know, this is the central confession of the Gospel of Mark. Every story, every event narrated in the Gospel is leading to this pivotal point. And then the Gospel starts to unpack what it means to be the Christ. So this, the question I want to ask you this morning is... Who do you say Jesus is? You know, some, if you ask a question out in the streets of Olveston, some might say, well, he was a nice guy. He was a good teacher, perhaps. A religious zealot, some might say. A nutter, others might say. A deluded man. I'm not interested in what they have to say. I'm interested in what you have to say. Who do you say Jesus is? It makes us move on from easy theological statements 
because it requires us to make a personal response, a personal response to who Jesus is. You know, I would suggest there are probably three common responses. There may be more, but a good sermon requires at least three points sometimes. <laughs> First response is to hate him. That was the response of many Pharisees and the Herodians, the people who were the rulers of the day, saw Jesus as a threat to their authority, an offence to their theology, and they wanted him gone. Maybe another response is to doubt him. You know, there are many people who came to follow Jesus, huge crowds who came to hear what, they had, what he had to say, but, you know, they were spectators. They were spectators. They wanted to see something amazing. And Jesus' teaching doesn't really reflect probably what good uh, pastoral practice would be in a church these days, because Jesus taught in parables, but didn't explain to anybody what they meant except for his own disciples. So that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear. Because you have to come to grips with who Jesus is before you start exploring what his teaching is. So a third response might be to believe and to follow. A response of faith. So Mark is saying, who is Jesus? He's addressing this question, but then he goes on to say, well, what does it mean to follow him? I don't think it was open for Mark to say, well, following Jesus is an easy thing to do. There's no prosperity gospel here. There's no saying that Jesus is to give us purpose. Jesus is to make our life good. Jesus is going to protect us from harm. In fact, it's probably quite the opposite. The followers of Jesus are going to incur significant risk. The followers of Jesus need to set aside the things that preoccupy them now in order to fully immerse themselves in who Jesus is. There's no halfway. You see, grace is free, isn't it? But it's not cheap. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Jesus paid an enormous cost to save you and to save me. And to follow Jesus means that we must at times be prepared to pay a great cost. Now, sitting here in Olverston, we may think, well, we're not being caused, called to lay down our lives. Maybe we're called to lay down some excess baggage from our lives. But no one has called us to confess Jesus in the face of some serious consequences if we do. In Rome, if you didn't go ahead and say who you are, they left you alone. They weren't really out to hunt down Christians. 
But if they asked you the questions and you answered, you suffered the consequences. Isn't this what the heart of discipleship is? Isn't that, doesn't this mean, isn't this what it means to follow him? You know, but so often, and we, and I certainly include myself in this, put limitations on how our faith is expressed in our life and how we live. Our attention is drawn to other things. Sometimes we're so tightly bound up by our traditions and our ways that we're not prepared to step out of comfort zones in obedience to Jesus. Sometimes our experience of Christ is limited to these four walls. And then when the church service stops, off we wander to live our life that is virtually indistinguishable from anyone else. Maybe we place limits on what we're prepared to do or not prepared to do. Whether we're prepared to serve. Join a host team? No way. That's not for me. Can't do that. Sign a volunteer agreement? I can't bear that cost. I mean, these are trivial matters, brothers and sisters. Jesus says in Mark 8.34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, taping, taking up your cross and saying, I'm not going to eat chocolate cake anymore. I mean, this was written for people who knew what a cross was. Nero strung them up everywhere. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life me and the gospel will save it. So to follow Jesus is costly. You know, Jesus was so popular at times, but he never committed himself to the crowds. And sometimes I wonder that if the gospel of Jesus was preached so faithfully in churches, our mega churches would become minor churches because the cost is so great. Sometimes we want to win the popularity contest, but that's not what it's about. You know, I wish I could get up here and say to you that I'm completely obedient to Jesus. This challenge is a challenge to me. I wish I had the courage to do what he calls us to do, to have courage to be obedient and to enter the life that Jesus calls us to do but it's great that God loves us and he perseveres with us and gives us the opportunity time and time again to make a response to the question who is Jesus and it's a response that we should keep in mind through our whole journey together As a church, we should commit to walking together, to walk that journey of discipleship, to challenge each other, to encourage each other, to pray for each other so that we are 
entering deeper into the life that Jesus has called us to. We must love each other, forgive each other, not hold grudges against each other, not criticise each other, not seek to pull each other down. Now, Jesus says that I want you, us, to be in the world, but not of the world. The irony is sometimes we withdraw the world, but we take the world with us in how we relate to each other. Who do you say I am, says Jesus. So the gospel points out that to follow Jesus is to, is to accept a cost, but it's also the way of love. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, all our soul, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. You know, the gospel encourages us to, to love God with the sort of love demonstrated by the young woman at Bethany who anointed Jesus with that very expensive perfume very soon to his death and his resurrection. To love others like those men who must have loved that paralytic man so much that they climbed the roof and dug through somebody's uh, house in order to bring that man to Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to live a life of humility and a life of patience. I love theologians because they've got the best words ever. When they speak of the Ten Commandments, they speak of the Decalogue. When they speak of the name of God, that unpronounced name, they speak of the Tetragrammaton. When they speak of the coming of God, they speak of the eschaton. Yeah. Only they know what they're talking about. <laughs> but Jesus describes the kingdom of God as like the mustard seed, the smallest seed that grows to become the greatest tree in the garden, providing shelter to the birds of the air. It is a process that was inaugurated by Jesus. That it is now and the not yet. Inaugurated eschatology. Don't you love that? Now and not yet. It came with Jesus. It is growing. There is a present and a future aspect. How comforting must that be? to someone facing a horrid persecution. To be reminded, not just being told, but to have it, have that confession brought out of them that here is Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And to have the hope of the promise of eternity with him. And that's a journey that you and I need to do together.
There's no, we're not talking about individual enlightenment here, not talking about finding the way for yourself. The Christian journey is a communal journey. It's something we must do. If your brother falls, we don't criticise him. We don't kick him when he's down. We put a hand and lift him up. Let's work together to see God bring fruition to his good and perfect will. Can I encourage you this morning just to invest some time? Just invest some time and read again through the Gospel of Mark. You know, take away whatever preconceptions you have, what, what habits you fall into and allow the Gospel to speak to you. Allow God to speak to you through his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you uh, this morning when you say, who do they say I am? We say you are the Christ. We say that you are the Son of God. We say that you are our Saviour. And we say, Lord, please help us in our unbelief. Father, let's, we ask and we know that your presence will be with us and is with us, that your spirit calls us on. Father, may our hearts be prepared to hear and to respond to you so that people in Olverston and around the world, anyone we touch, may ask that question, what's making you so different why do you do the things you do that we may then be able to say it's because jesus is the christ in jesus name amen